This Tome Show production is supported by Noble Knight Games, where out of print is available again, and by listeners like you. Keep using the affiliate links for Amazon and dndclassics.com and support the show while you shop. Welcome to the News Desk. Once a month, we get together to chat about the latest news in D&D, and your two anchors today are Sam Dillon, that's me. And I'm Jeff Greiner. And we're here to talk about the D&D news from February of 2014. So we are breaking into our normal broadcast here with some some hard-hitting news that just landed, what, a couple days ago? Yep. Uh, and, and unfortunately, for, during this uh, breaking news segment, we have lost our man on the street. <laughs> he's he's out uh, pounding the ground doing hard that's work, right, so we, right. we can't get in contact with him. So the breaking news is this. Somebody very um, pointedly noted that a certain large national book retailer <laughs> that shall remain nameless that shall remain nameless but rhymes with Larns and Bobles <laughs> uh, recently published entries for two D&D Next products and then promptly shortly thereafter pulled those listings from the website so take that how you will. Uh, you might interpret that, I suppose, as um, they posted it, it was wrong, and so they pulled it. Or you could interpret that as they posted it and got chastised because they weren't supposed to have it has, the dates haven't been announced yet, and so then they pulled it. Of course, at this point, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, those and two Twitter Twitter was ablaze. Twitter was ablaze. Uh, those two products are the a D and D starter set. Releasing July fifteenth for about twenty bucks, and a player's handbook releasing on August nineteenth for about fifty bucks. So steep. any it is steep fifty bucks for a player's handbook. Fifty bucks, but you know, depending on how what the page count is, that's that's in line with a large full color hardcover, um, published book. I mean. It's still steep, I agree, but it's in line with market values at this point. Well, I think it would be one thing if the player's handbook was the entire game, right? Yeah. But, but you're, you're not asking people to pay $50 for a game. You're asking people to pay $150 for a game. Right. And that is steep. I I agree. I'm just you know that's if they you know that this brings up the speculation of are they going to have sort of a more all in one player's handbook and make the DMG be a, a truly an ancillary or auxiliary product or is it going to be necessary for the for the DM to get a DM's guide to be able to run the game effectively and is the player's handbook going to have any bestiary information in it or do you are you going to have to buy a monster manual? Um, you know, there's been speculation for months uh, about whether they'll they'll sort of go against the history of the product and make an all-in-one book rather than the three core books. Considering that they're making an edition where that, that's basically them saying we want to embrace the history of the product, I somehow don't see that happening. Well, they want to embrace the history <laughs> of the product, but then on the other hand, there's mechanics like advantage in there, which is which is no, that's new, true. new and unique. So you know, maybe they're maybe they're doing a little old with a little new mm-hmm. and and trying to uh, you know show show how they are also you know going into the future. So who knows? I don't know. It's all speculation. We will I, see I really what happens. Yes, yeah. we'll see. 
But in any case, that's that's the breaking news. Um, you won't find those entries on on the websites anymore because it's been pulled. Mm-hmm. Um, but there it is. Yeah. So so chances are we're going to get an, an announcement in the next month about some actual dates. Then, since they they obviously are are knowing their dates and and uh, they're going to let this news die down for a couple weeks probably before they make a true and a, a true official announcement. But uh, I, I would look for that coming soon. A little bird hinted at me that that would be the case uh, yeah. a couple weeks ago, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I figured that uh, that they would come up with some sort of official announcement. I think they got preempted by the uh, the accidental list. You know, Amazon did that to them with a, a few products a few years mm-hmm. ago, and and they got they got their hand slapped pretty bad, and then they quit doing that. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that uh, that Larns and Bobles have, <laughs> have uh, <laughs> as you called them, <laughs> have probably gotten their their uh, their contract reviewed. And uh, and they're they're probably someone's getting yelled at. We'll put it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, there's our breaking news. Back All to right. your regularly scheduled program. Do 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 do. And with us today is our man in the street, Randall Walker, live from the WizKids Plastic Foundry, where they're making a new round of D and D minis. Randall, how are things over there? Exciting. Talk to us about those D and D minis. There's a lot of them, and they just keep rolling off the line. Just when you thought it was safe to lock up your mini cabinet. <laughs> so I take it that uh, that means that Dungeon Command is done, huh? You know what? That's good speculation. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't see any Dungeon Command uh, expansions in their product catalog for the next few months. So That probably answers the question then. And I, and I, um, I, I read something about... Um, yeah. WizKids doing a battles or, or uh, not even battles like a dogfighting style game uh, associated mm-hmm. with their D&D license yeah that's actually not in part of this news but you're right <laughs> um, <laughs> are we going straight well, into well it is now yeah, we're, we're, straight, we're, we're, we're now. in the lightning round so go ahead and take we it are, okay excellent okay um, yeah I did, I, I'm working without a script here guys yeah, so yeah, we, we never let you without the script <laughs> that's right exactly. <laughs> it's just as well no, so WizKids, it, everyone remembers these guys. They're the ones that do Hero Clicks and um, uh, what was their other line? Was it Dungeon Clicks? I can't oh, remember Mage, what it was. Mage Knight. Mage Knight. Yeah, that's what it was. Mage Knight. And everyone they also, remembers they also those. do the Pathfinder minis. Yep. Oh, is that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember that now. Okay. And so they've signed a deal with um, Wizards of the Coast, and they're going to be producing um, in um, uh, cooperation with them a line of uh D minis fully painted uh these will be um produced i understand don't they have a plant in the united states i have no idea i can't remember i can't remember uh, yeah you're, you're I, at the foundry right now you tell us i am at the foundry <laughs> I, I they put a, they put a bag yeah they put a bag over his head, head yeah, when they I took woke him up here there. three yeah. hours ago oh, okay. the smell of plastic it's terrible <laughs> yeah um uh, but it's going to be released in conjunction with tyranny of dragons storyline um, so you're gonna have good old Dritz in there. You you know all Forgotten Realm stuff, um, which isn't too the, far away, is it? I mean, it's uh, decently soon. Yeah, like the summer, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so you've got your typical cast of characters um, from the Forgotten Realms and those types. Uh, they've only showing five, and there's in fine print underneath each miniature, not final image. So what we're gonna get, who knows? There's still a lot of speculation. Um, I do know that they've also released. Uh, a line, or they're going to be releasing a line of uh, combat games similar to their, um, was it uh, X-Wing? Is yeah. that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Except it's going to be dragons. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so that will be really, really cool. Uh, for those people that like the miniature battle games uh, of that kind of type where you've got um, ships and things swooping over each other and, you know, and dogfighting and things like that, except instead of spaceships and things, it's going to be dragons. And that is actually kind of a very cool idea. I'm not a huge mini combat guy. I love minis, and and trust me, you'll understand that here in a few minutes. If you don't already know that, um, I love minis. Um, uh, however, I'm not a huge fan of mini miniature combat systems. You know, I never did the. Um, uh, oh, my mind keeps my mind's wandering tonight, and I can't battle, think of the name. System. Oh battle well, no system. the uh, the ones where you help build whole armies. And yeah, that, and well, you're thinking like, like Warhammer, Warhammer and all that. Yeah, Warhammer and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. sorry, thanks guys. Yeah, I, <laughs> I all, all of those kind of games, I can't. I don't like them. They're just too. It's too much. Too much work. It's too much. In too much buy-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they're I expensive. It's, yeah. So, but a lot of people dig those, and those are great. But this particular game, if with the dragons, I think you could fold that into a, a larger game, and you know, you could have a big battle. Um, as part of your ongoing campaign, you know, and I think that's kind of a cool idea. I think there's some synergy there that's going to be really neat. Now, these particular ones that that I'm talking about this time, though, um, aren't part of that part. Um, you know, these are just regular full color minis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some speculation for a while that these might be click minis as well, but it doesn't look like they're going to be. Um, Which is good. I don't want click minis at my at my table. Right. Um, but at the same time, Wizards of the Coast has traditionally folded their miniatures into a game of some kind. Mm-hmm. So it would be, you know, stay tuned. Who knows? Because um, they've seemed to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to be their, um, their MO. But although, although I now, think that, wait, that's, that was true when they were doing them. And I think they wanted to create the game to encourage people to buy it, even if they weren't playing D&D. Right? right now, now that somebody else is making it, I think they they don't have to worry as much about having a dual purpose and a dual reason to convince people to buy it. You know, maybe maybe that, it is just maybe it can be single focused. And that's very that's a very good point, Jeff. I, th- I think you're right. Um, that's, I think it's still coming in randomized packs, though. For yes, right? yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's still there's still some sort of traditional. Well, and that encourages collectors. So, you know, right, that's right. what that does. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, like, so they could easily turn it into a collectible miniatures game. Oh, yeah. sure. You know, sure, sure. produce some yeah. rules. But, like, X-Wing is made by FFG. Does WizKids do their um, their molds for them? See, I was under the impression. The, the X-Wing miniatures game is an FF, is a Fantasy Flight game. Games is that, is, but is that their dogfighting game? Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Uh, no, you, I, I no, don't, you, don't, you, maybe you, I'm just no, thinking no, no. about the wrong one. You're right. It's not X-wing. It's uh, Star Trek Attack Wing. Oh, okay. That's, okay. The, that's the name of the game. I'm on WizKids web- website, and that, it's right at the top there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay, I so was like, this... oh, I think X-wing is. But they're both similar. They're very similar. Yeah, games. it's a very similar idea. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I apologize, but yeah, that's uh, no. I just I was curious. I thought, ooh, did WizKids do those molds? Because it's entirely possible. I mean, you know. I mean, you never know who's right. I mean, they're, it's mm-hmm. a, you know. Yeah. But okay. anyway. um, their sculpts have been always been fantastic. They've, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I found, like, for the Pathfinder minis, like, 
much like the D&D minis before, right? They're hit and miss. Some of them are really on and some of them right. kind of turn blobby in the face, you know, and that kind of stuff. But, but, the, but the Pathfinder ones are a little more – they're less uh, flexible. They're less malleable. The, the plastic is different from the, the D&D minis. Which is not a bad thing because the D&D no, no, minis I, had a, yeah, had a, a good, tendency a good to deform. Thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a good thing. It means they're more brittle, though, so they they'll break rather than bend. But that means they won't bend; <laughs> they won't come out of the package all mm-hmm. bent up, you know, which is good. So cool! I'm I'm excited. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think th- I think um, the Pathfinder minis uh, were a little more expensive than what the old D and D minis were. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that this is going to make them any more affordable. Well, so for example, the old like the D and D like. The the under an underdog uh, underdog and underdog underdark. an underdark box of <laughs> one of the what is it the queen of the underdark or whatever mm, the, that like one that, yeah. the one the, a booster box of that was like uh, what was it eight minis plus a special rare eight minis plus one rare usually about nine or twelve ninety nine or something like that yeah for like twelve ninety nine and Pathfinder's like yeah. five minis four four regulars and mm-hmm. like a rare or a big one. Mm-hmm. And for like ten bucks, and, and in so fairness, it's, it's also been yeah. what five or ten years. So, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> prices go yeah. up. Too, oh yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But like I said, like the plastic mold is a little bit different. So you know, there have been some evolution in in the ability of of you know how what they can do. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I know I'll give it a shot. And based on on the not final image images that they're showing, I mean, those look really good. I'm I'm worried mm-hmm. that they're saying not final image because the real ones won't look that good. Mm. <laughs> no. Sometimes you see stuff like that yeah. it's because you know we don't want you to think this is the final because it's going to well, be better than that. But I, I, I'm that, guessing, yeah, that well, might be a concept promo mold, you know. Right. And so they, so they have to say not final image because they might make some tweaks to it, and then you know. Right. I'm looking forward to the idea of being able to to buy minis again though on a regular basis. I mean, I've I've bought some Pathfinder minis every now and then to to satiate my my need to to grow my collection, right? But it'll be it'll be nice to have some more. My collection's big enough that I only buy them now if I need specific things. Mm. You know, See, I, didn't, I didn't. I didn't really start building a collection until fourth edition, so I'm still growing. Because okay, yeah. I then I only got a few years before they were they were off the shelves. Well, and right. one of the things that this collection is not showing us right now is, um, right now you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a PC or a humanoid type miniature. Mm-hmm. There's a glut. There's, you can buy anything you want. Mm. Um, In fact, much. some of these look like ones that we've seen before. Well, maybe so. And I want to see monsters. Show yeah. me what you're going to do with monsters. Those are the things that I think um, a lot of people are going to want to buy. Um, so, you know, I want to see those and um, and we'll see what happens. Um, as you'll find out later when I go into my in-depth article, there's all kinds of options for minis right now. So, mm. Well, and and... I, and I just thought of this now as, as we were getting ready to move on from the topic because we're 10 minutes in on the lightning round. <laughs> um, so much for that, yeah. Right. Um, but it does occur to me as I'm looking at the five promotional images, three of them are female, which is nice. That's good. You know, That's good. We, we, have, that we, have, we have an yeah. abundance of male options for, for oh, yeah. like like figures now. So it'll be nice to have some more female options. Absolutely. So. All right. Let's uh, whiz on past that topic. <laughs> Sam, tell us about Scourge of the Sword Coast. Uh, Scourge of the Sword Coast is the latest D&D organized play adventure. And uh, it's the first organized play. It's the third part of the Sundering 
a series. So the the first Sundering uh, was Murder in Baldur's Gate, and then there was uh, what was it Legacy, the Crystal Shard, mm. and then now uh, Scourge of the Sword Coast. Well, the first two products in the line were were print products, and this is the first one that is uh, only available in PDF form on dndclassics.com. It costs uh, $17.99, I think, for the PDF. And when you download it, you get a set of the, the most recent set of D&D Next rules. So you get the, the most current, you know, most fully completed rule set there. Um, and I believe launch weekend was the 19th, 17th or 19th of February? 15th, 15th to 16th. 15th, okay. So I was a, a few days off there. But the, it's been for sale since the 4th. I actually picked it up. Uh, to see what it was about, and it is on organized play right now, and it's it's being run just like uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate and the Crystal Shard. Uh, in terms of at the end, you know, you you get to file the report for your you know with your group that says exactly what happened, and that therefore you're uh, you're sort of getting to uh, to in- have your input into the, to what becomes the canonical story of the Sundering. Hmm. And it continues the story of Ghosts of Dragonspear. So if you got to the end of that and realized, right. hey, this doesn't really finish anything. <laughs> but it doesn't continue it with the same party because no. this is for a low-level group. And by the time you finished uh, Dragonspear, you should have been you know, uh, relatively high okay. level there to nine or something like that. Yep. So. And we will be reviewing this uh, in a recording next month. So people can find out more about it then and when we have a little more information. Yeah, about the product itself, not about you know the organized play bit of it. Mm. And I have a few things to talk about in my lightning round. First of all, the D and D Classics rollout continues. Obviously, they you know haven't released everything that's ever been published uh, for D and D yet, but they, they keep adding. Like every every week, they it won't another, be long. <laughs> yeah, every week they add another four or five. Like the big ones for me this month was they suddenly introduced Al Kadim and Oriental Adventures. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. Which is yeah. awesome. Like, I, I loved some Al Qadim back in, in college. Um, and Oriental Adventures was always sort of a classic. Plus, all the, you know, the normals, right? We got more Forgotten Realms, more Dark Sun, Birthright, Planescape. Um, they even had uh, one or two fourth edition um, releases, which mm-hmm. hasn't seen a lot of support. Um, so, it's nice to see some of that still coming out, too. So, D&D yeah. Classics. I, I made a, another D&D Classics purchase just tonight before we started recording. And it was Al Qadim. Because it's on sale for like it's like five bucks right now. Yeah. How do you not buy the the campaign setting for Alcadine for five bucks? <laughs> I mean the 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 modules the, the that go along with it are like fifteen bucks, but the mm-hmm. main the main campaign setting is only five. So yeah. Well, those modules, the majority of them came in slimline boxes back in the day. Yeah. They were they were usually two or three little you know thirty two page booklets and a couple of maps, and it came in a, like a hardy box. Yeah. And if you were a yeah. fan, if you're a fan of uh, Kobold Press, um, Wolfgang Bauer did a lot of work on Alcadine back in the day. He didn't mm-hmm. do the original campaign box, but he did a lot of the stuff after that for Alcadine. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention is that the Sundering continues. Um, we've now discussed three of the books in our book clubs and interviewed the authors for those, uh, either as part of the news desk or as part of the book club or both in a couple cases. Uh, and we're going to continue doing that. The Reaver is out and the Sentinel comes out at the beginning of April. It actually is slated to come out at April 1st. Should we trust that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. April Fool's Day release? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's not really an April Fool's Day kind of book, though, so... Turns I out the Sentinel is actually about a jester. <laughs> 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 All 
All right. Well, that's it for the the lightning round. Let's take a quick break to remind everybody that Noble Knight is an awesome game store with out of print and new game stuff. And our pick for this episode goes along with Randall's theme. It is the Red Dragon Evolution from Pathfinder Battles created by WizKids. So if you kind of want to see what they do for their sort of uh, more exclusive, you know, more uh, sets, they did a series called Red Dragon Evolution where you get a, I think it's a medium, large, and huge size red dragon. Oh, wow. Uh, they I'll, have they have white and blue dragons for that too, by yeah, the way. See? But what's I mean, more, it's not what, just red. It's, but what's it's, more iconic than the red? Come on. No, I know. I'm just saying like <laughs> – The if, white if one. <laughs> you, yeah. If you, if, you don't, if you don't want a red dragon, you can also probably find a blue and a white yeah. one there too. Absolutely. Uh, and so if you want to check out what WizKids miniatures are like before um, the D&D ones, official ones come out, then uh, go check them out. Uh, when we return, we will be talking to uh, R.A. Salvatore about his latest D&D novel, Night of the Hunter, also coming out very shortly. Hello! Hello, citizens! Oh, thank goodness! Adventurers! We need a noble knight! Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices! Out-of-print games! The latest releases and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic. I'll do it. Yes. Well, you see the beast he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot anyway only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha, I got to do something to help out. I am here now with R.A. Salvatore. Welcome back, sir. Good to be back, Jeff. Are you even allowed to release a book without talking to us at some point anymore? Um, <laughs> I probably not, no. <laughs> I think it's in the contract now, right? <laughs> Very good. So we're here to talk about Night of the Hunter. Yes. So let's let's just be broad in general first. What is Night of the Hunter about? It's the um, sequel to The Companions, the book that came out last summer. Um, you know, I, I've been writing these books for 27 years now, and I'm just doing them sequentially. I'm just I'm just writing the next thing. The next logical extension of the story of the characters and Dritz in particular. And um, so The Companions is kind of a funny book when you think about it because it's the beginning of two different series. It's the beginning of the Sundering series, which has six different authors all using their own characters but tells the big story of the, the Sundering and the Forgotten Realms. And it's the beginning of the Companions Codex, I guess they're calling it, which is... Um, you know, the, this book and then the logical extension of what happens in The Companions. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. And if it doesn't, be as confused as I am because I can't keep them straight anymore <laughs> either. Now, you mentioned that the, that the previous book, The Companions, was uh, the first book of The Sundering. And I think I would argue that the book before The Companions was actually tied to The Sundering as well. Absolutely. How, so how does this book relate to The Sundering? Well, it, it's actually taking place right around the time of, I'm not sure, probably Ed Greenwood's book, Troy Denning and Ed Greenwood's books, the last two Sundering books. 
you know the sun, the thing about the sundering is you got to think of the sundering as World War II, if you will, mm-hmm. in the realms. So, and I've said this before, but you know I did the Battle of Britain and Aaron's doing the Holocaust and Paul Kemp's doing the North African campaign. Maybe Richard Lee Byers is telling about what's going on in the Pacific. You know, I'm just using that broad analogy that we're all telling stories, but we're using our own characters in different regions. In the middle of that, I have the last threshold, the companions. Night of the Hunter, this summer's Rise of the King, and then the book after that, which we haven't named yet, that I'm writing now, all of which take place, well, the first one takes place, the Companions, kind of, and the Last Threshold, they both take place before and up to the beginning of the Sundering, if you will. These last three, uh, Night of the Hunter, Rise of the King, and the book that's coming out next March that we haven't named yet, all take place during what is called the War of the Sundering this great war that's going on in many different parts of the world, many different factions fighting it out. It's not a, it's not an us versus them. It's kind of everybody versus everybody else type of situation. Mm-hmm. So it takes place right in the heart of what's going on in the Silver Marches and you know the kingdom of the um, Alliance of Luruwar, um, where Mithril Hall is. And so all of that's playing into it. It's, it's a crazy time in the realms. So you mentioned that, that – a- it seems like the Sundering books, at least to date, are telling the story leading up to the Sundering, and then you're talking about the next three books that you're writing uh, or have written, dealing with the, or being during the time period of this event called the War of the Sundering. Does that mean we should expect more Sundering books, not just from you, but from the other authors as well? Um, well, let me back it up a little bit. Okay. When I say the War of the Sundering, the Sundering is a time of great conflict because you have all these power vacuums being created. By the the drifting of the worlds and the and the the, cha- the fights among the pantheon of gods and all this kind of meta stuff that's going on that I don't usually deal with all that much in my book I kind of allude to it but I don't really deal with it directly so when I say the war of the sundering what I'm really talking about is is there there are conflicts that are exploding everywhere as a result of what's going mm-hmm. on so it's not like the formal war of the sundering if I you see. will but yeah I I really think that I'll be shocked. I mean, these these other authors, uh, Aaron and Richard and Paul, uh, Troy and Ed. And of course, Ed's books are like mine. They just keep rolling through everything right. and keep right. going. So you can expect more from him. But I know Aaron's not abandoning the characters that, that show up in, in, in her book and The Sundering. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think Richard's planning to either. And I know Troy's not either. I mean, when you when you create these characters, you know, they become kind of your – your reference point to the realm. So for mm-hmm. me, it's Dritz, then then Trary and Jell Axel, and all the rest of them. But the other authors are doing the same thing now, and that's part of the plan. So I'm sure that they're going to be dovetailing off of the books that they create uh, during this major series, The Sundering. So The Sundering really could have been a probably a twelve or or eighteen part series. No, well, no, because <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, look, if you read, um, if you go back and read. Um, Siege of Darkness. Mm-hmm. My book, Siege of Darkness, right? It's like the ninth book in the Drift Saga. It takes place during the Time of Troubles. Mm-hmm. So it could be an Avatar book. Remember the Avatar trilogy, mm-hmm. Waterdeep and Shadowdale and Tantris, that told the story of basically second edition, the, where the, the world changed and the realms changed. My book had that in it, but it wasn't part of that series. Right. So. 
you get kind of messed up, you know, and it, this is for marketing reasons, to help the bookstores keep things straight. It's to help the reader break things down into logical parts. But you kind of run into trouble when you start thinking of the books in trilogies and series in mm-hmm. a living, breathing world that keeps going. Like people say to me, you know, you know, I just finished this book. What, what's this transitions thing? You know, they, I just finished um, the two swords. What's this transitions thing? Or okay, well, I just finished the Orc King, but I see you've got a new series called Gauntlegrim. I mean, Neverwinter. Well, it's not really a new series. It's the next books in line that makes sense after the previous books. And I think the, all the authors are trying to do that. There, there, are, there aren't that many books coming out in the realms now. I think there's six this year and maybe five or six next year. So there aren't that many. And it's the same authors pretty much now. And, and so kind of like at the beginning when it all started, when you had, you know, you had me doing the Icewind Dale books and Ed doing Elminster books and – Jeff Grubb and Kate Novak doing um, kind of a – I don't know how to describe their books other than I love them with, with the, um, oh, the the runes and the, the uh, tattoos and the mm-hmm. – ah, great stuff. And you had Doug Niles doing the Moonshade trilogy and you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, had, you had just a few authors doing – taking their characters on a journey through this wonderful world. And that's how we describe the world. So now we're doing it again. I mean, I was asked in a, in a email interview I did the other day, you know, what's the 10 second pitch for night of the hunter. And my answer was easy. It's 1988 all over again. Hmm. There's this freshness to it again. And it's really funny because one of the other questions was, you know, the, the first reaction to night of the hunters is the best book you've ever written or the best Dritz book ever. You know, does that surprise you? And my honest answer was yes, not because I don't think it's a good book, but because it was so easy to write, because everything felt so fresh and new. It was almost like painting on a blank canvas again, in some ways. Even with all this history that I knew was there behind me, I was free to do a lot of things with it because of the events of the Companions. So it's really I think it worked, and I'm really shocked it did, <laughs> even though most of it was my idea or a lot of it was my idea. But I think it worked that, that the, the – the, I don't want to call it a reset because that's not fair. But the logical extension, kind of the cleansing of the realms through this event called the Sundering gives back that fresh feeling of 1988, 1989, 1990, the early days of the realms where where the writers and people playing in the realms can feel like I've got a blank canvas. I can really let it fly again. Uh-huh. And that was the whole point, right? So so you talked about how there's a relatively small stable and that everything that you're doing is continuing to be an extension of the story, which is going to play in the Sundering and all that as well. One of the hallmarks, I think, of the Sundering was the level of cooperation between the six authors. Has that level of cooperation continued as you guys work on future books? It's um, we it, it, Honestly, it had to shift a little bit mm-hmm. and we had to find a new equilibrium and now it's even tighter. And the reason is because of, of all the license properties that are popping up. Um, and by that, I mean the Neverwinter game. Mm-hmm. You know, other games that they're planning and doing and other product lines. And so what, really from a story point of view, they need the authors and a couple of people up at Wizards of the Coast to really be the feeder pool for all of these licenses that are coming in. Now, and not only that, but these licenses like the Neverwinter 
the people at Cryptic for Neverwinter are going to have needs from the IP, from the realms. And they come to Wizards and they say, look, we need to have X, Y, and Z going on, something going on in this land. You know, X, Y, and Z would really fit the bill. And Wizards is being very smart about this because instead of just saying, okay, let's just put something down and tell everybody about it, they're asking the authors. Hmm. What do you think we should do with this? How, how can we make this work so that you can continue to write books in this area that, that you want to write and we're giving these licensors what they want? for the other products and the other experiences that people are having. So it's, it's really a, it's, become, it's become much bigger than that initial meeting two years ago. It's become something where we're all being asked to come in and work in a cooperative manner across media, mm-hmm. which is because I, you know, I worked on computer games for years. I worked with uh, Atari on Demon Stone. I've worked with a couple others that I can't talk about. I've worked with 38 Studios for five years before it crashed. And I know that the demands and the needs of that medium are different than the book medium. So having that background, I'm able, I almost sometimes feel like the, I don't want to say the referee because that implies it's antagonist, but I'm kind of the translator between the games department and some of the authors when mm-hmm. we're on the phone together talking because I talk games. And I talk books. I've had that that cross experience, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, so yeah, I mean that the it's all it's all hands on deck. You know, Ed's consulting with Wizards. So am I. Good. In a, in a formal manner for all of this. It's good. I look forward to seeing where that goes in the future as the the stable of authors sort of uh, shifts and changes and evolves over time as well. Mail it already is, so. <laughs> cool. Um, let's get into some story-specific questions. Back to Night of the Hunter here. Um, mm-hmm. In every good story, of course, the characters develop and change and what have you. So how can we expect to see Drist and the companions growing through this story? You talked about this being a natural evolution. So how is it that we can see them evolve here? Well, particularly with with the people around Drist, they've got – two sets of experiences that they're drawing on here. And so there, there really is a, in some, in some places there are a lot of conflicts within the character. Um, for example, we have, we have, I'm not going to use their real names. I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't read the companions yet, mm-hmm. but we've got spider. All right. The halfling spider paraffin who is intensely loyal to dreads. I mean, he walked through the grave to get back to Dritz, right? Mm-hmm. But he left. He had to leave a life, a real life, to get back to Dritz. And there's some real pain going on there. And when you look at the characters from the companions, what you see is a bunch of people who are looking at life both with the fresh experiences of, of young adults, you know, they're all about 21 years old, and the, the, the wisdom of the ages that they knew before. Um, with competing loyalties and competing uh, desires and competing goals. And it gets very testy in particular with a certain dwarf 
who has been unsure of this whole thing from the beginning. And as I said with Spider, who, who, you know, he's got his loyalties, but it's not like the second existence for him was a blank slate leading to one thing. There was more baggage than he had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And that's true for all of them in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's really interesting for me as an author to explore it. And um, as far as Dritz goes, I think this whole thing for him has come almost as the weight coming off his shoulders after all these years where he really isn't worried about anything. He's free to just go and, and enjoy every step of his road of adventure and accept what may happen in a way he's passed through well. While others might have passed through death, he's passed through the fear of losing people and the fear of his own death. So that's quite interesting. And then the characters that Dritz left behind in the last threshold aren't gone either. So I've got this entire other group of characters with their own motivations, and they're an incredibly interesting group that I'm just starting to explore. And we do explore a couple of them in depth in this book. Good. I won't give that away, but there's plenty going on with a lot of... There's more moving parts now than I've had since I wrote the Dark Elf trilogy. Mm -hmm. There are moving parts all over the place. Well, and that brings up uh, another one of my questions. You've got all these moving parts, and over the course of the last several books, you've layered in a lot of potential threats and villains, right? Each of the companions sort of went through their own storyline through the companions, and are bringing with them their own baggage and in some case villains and, and whatever. Plus you've got the netherese and then the drow and, and on and on and on. Uh, what villains should we expect to, to sort of take center stage for this story and do any of them sort of come to a conclusion? Okay. I'll give you a hint for the people who have read the companions. Let me see if I can be opa- opaque enough not to spoil <laughs> it. For people who have read the companions, one of the companions went back to his own home on his journey. And he almost abandoned his goal to go back to his home again because something he knew trouble was brewing. Do you understand which one I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. He's got a beard. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, trouble yeah. certainly is brewing. Now, also, I would tell people that if they haven't read the graphic novel Cutter, there's a graphic novel that I wrote with I, for IDW, my son Gino and I wrote, mm-hmm. called Cutter. It's a five-comic series that became a graphic novel and it tells the story of a, of a sentient sword that we used to know and a particular dark elf that holds it and some of the things that happen in that really inadvertently lead to war hmm. and that is being picked up in a big way at the opening of night of the hunter so you're seeing that all the little things that seemed almost little like the end of the companions, there was a fight and between two women, and it was a a, a real knockdown, dragout fight. Mm-hmm. And sure, that was a that was a battle. There are so many different levels of that battle. It's it's a fierce, kind of half crazy fighter against a a wizard uh, wizard priest, if you will. It's a it's a battle of the old Fridrits versus the new. It's a battle of Loyalty and warmth versus adventure. It's, it's all the different paradoxes and parallels all came crashing together. And the two of these got into this mortal combat in a very strange place in Gontelgrim. And you can view that as the battle between the two women. But 
maybe it was a lot more. Maybe it was a proxy war between a couple of of um, kind of supernatural beings who are fighting over the soul of a certain drow. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it that way, you see that the one who lost is probably really not happy. Which was going to go into my one of my other questions about, uh, is this the book where we find out uh, who chose Dress? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I Wait guess... Minute, is it this book or the next book? No, I, yeah, I think in this one it starts coming clear what's going on. Okay. So it sounds like the the villains and, and whatever that that you discussed sort of coming to, to a head here are not necessarily the ones I expected. It's the, you, you mentioned, Oh, and I'll catch you by surprise more because there are hints about a new storyline that I can't talk about. That's coming up in the realms in this one as well, you, involving an entirely different type of and set of creatures. You seem to be, um, yeah, you seem to layer in. Sneak in. There's, there's a million moving parts and that's, what's making it so fun. You know, there's nothing is kind of set in stone. It's not like all the old, like with the in the older realms before before the sundering, the and even to the spell plague, and and they tried to do with the spell plague and didn't really work the way everyone had anticipated. You had a lot of lands that were pretty much kind of codified, so you knew what to expect. In the sundering, there's so much more going on involving bigger pieces of the puzzle that you don't know what to expect there are moving parts everywhere and when you look at it from that context as a writer it's it's just so much fun because you can this is why i said it feels like 1987 all over again when i was writing the crystal shard there was no icewind dale there was this little typo above the spine of the world mountains in the northwest corner of the map of Faerun that i turned into icewind dale blank slate do what you want have fun I mean, back when I started, I mean, Dritt's cat is named Guinevar, right? After King Arthur's queen. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could get away with that in the realms anymore. But back then, it was so fresh and so new. You could, it was like a blank slate. Throw, your, throw all of your dungeon ideas onto it, if you will, and have fun. It's kind of like that again, but there's all these pressures being exerted institutionally, and that mm-hmm. I mean by Watsi and us, to, with the factions fighting all over the place that you can't help but find conflict in your books. And that makes it so much more fun to write the books because there are things going on that have maybe have nothing to do with the story that you're trying to tell, but enrich the story you're trying to tell, but hint at a bigger story that's going on over here. So all these side streets are popping up. And as an author, I want to go down them all. I just don't know if I got that many books left in me. <laughs> it's just it's, – it's so much fun. Well, and that's where the, the cooperation between the authors is really great because you can see the things driving the world and those threads feed throughout the different books. Absolutely. So I guess uh, – no, For a long time there, honestly, for a long time there, I didn't even know the other authors in the realms. There are many authors who have written Forgotten Realms books that I don't even know who they are. I've never met them. I've never spoken with them. Hmm. I know every author in the realms now. Good. Very well. Like on my fast on my speed dial. That's the way it was in the beginning, except we didn't have speed dial back then. <laughs> we didn't even have cell phones back then. But that's the way it was in the beginning. When I used to call Ed Greenwood and say, Hey, I got this idea. What do you think? We're back to that point again. 
Good. I think that that cooperation can only lead to a, a better shared world as a whole. Or crazier crap than you can imagine. <laughs> That's true too. You never quite know what's gonna what's gonna happen in one book that that completely throws your book in on its head. Um, we're better at that now, but yeah, excellent. Well, that's part of the fun, it's, right? I, w- I would rephrase that and say you never know what's going to happen in one book that gives you this amazing idea as you're writing yeah. your book. So you want to change the ending or that- or take one of the sections of your book and just run it off on this tangent just to explore this crazy thing going on over here. Absolutely. That's the fun. Absolutely. So to wrap things up, is there anything else uh, you think people should know about Night of the Hunter or why you think people should pick it up and read it? Um, well, I'd like to clarify because I've got – I get about 10 – emails or Facebook messages a week, a day, asking, you know, do I need to read the other Sundering books to know what's going on with Drizzt? And the answer is no, you don't. I mean, it's the other authors aren't using my characters. I'm not using their characters. I think you're missing an awful lot if you don't read the other books, though. And not just about the tone of the world, but the fact that I really think there's some amazing writers. I mean, you've got You've got five of my favorite writers following me in that series. I think Paul Kemp is amazing. He, he, he choreographs a war as well as anyone. There's a reason why when we needed someone to tie up the War of the Spider Queen, we went to Paul. Hmm. Um, Aaron Evans, who did, did the third book in The Sundering, um, I just discovered her as a, as, a, as a reader because we share editors and Nina, my editor, said, you have to read Erin. And I went and read her uh, Brimstone Angels book and um, she's fabulous. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she, this kid's got it. Uh, her characters leap off the page into your living room and tell you who they are. And they are, every one of them is incredibly interesting. So, I mean, Aaron, to me, is, is, is a major, major find for Wizards of the Coast. And, and she is an incredibly talented voice. Um, then you get Richard Lee Byers. And, and, you know, Richard led off the War of the Spider Queen. Faron and Rild and all these other characters that people fell in love with, Richard created them. Richard can create characters as well as anybody out there writing. He's amazing. And he knocked it out of the park again with a Sundering book. And then you get Troy Denning. Troy Denning's back in the realms on my demand. I told Wizards, they said, what else can we do? We, you know, we want to get this right with the Sundering. What, what should we do? And I said, you should, you should get Ed on board as your consultant and make it Ed's realms again because they're Ed's realms. And you should hire Troy Denning back. And they said, why Troy Denning? And I said, because... Nobody understands the concept of teamwork and building a world better than Troy Denning. And I can't wait to see what he's done. I mean, I've been, I've been enjoying his Star Wars books like crazy. Mm-hmm. Now I get to see Troy back in the realms again. And that makes that, that, I can't tell you how happy that makes me. I love his work. He wrote some of the best realms books early on. And then you got Ed Greenwood, and they're his realms. And, and Ed feels like he's got the shackles taken off him, so he can just go crazy again and have fun. And he is. So, I mean, I tell people, you don't have to. You can read the Dritz books. You can just read straight. You can read Last Threshold, Companions, Night of the Hunter, Rise of the King, et cetera, et cetera. But you're really missing the opportunity to see some pretty fantastic work if that's all you're going to do with the Sunray. Very so. good. 
I hope that clarifies. Absolutely. And I hope people go out there and check them out. I know I've really enjoyed the Sundering book so far, and I look forward to continue to see them come along. I also have been enjoying the Driss books since I was, I don't know, in middle school, I think I started reading them. Yeah, so. you guys don't make me feel old. <laughs> it's but, funny. I was talking to the v- the VP of a game company called here today, not for me, um, to talk to to talk to my son, and uh, he wasn't home. And I answered the phone, and and this guy who's a big guy in one of the biggest gaming companies in the world, he said, "Oh no, this isn't Brian. It's Bob." Oh, oh, okay. Well, is Brian around? No, no, he's out. And he goes, "Well, cool. I want to tell you. Well, as a kid." I used to read your books all the time. And I'm like, thanks. Now I feel old. Yeah. No, no. Me and my friends in high school uh, had a had a group going on. There were, there were four or five of us. And, you know, so we one, only one of us would have to buy the book and then we'd pass it around. But everybody had to read it within a read every book in a week because the yeah, next per- person well, was begging for it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me because you go to my book signings and it looks like a Fleetwood Mac concert, man. <laughs> but the grandfather with his son and his granddaughter all reading the new book coming out. And that, that just makes me feel so good. I mean, it, it's such a warm feeling for me. I have I came to the conclusion a few years ago and, and you know, it was, it was a little, I've had, I had several epiphanies about what this whole thing means. Um, the first was how when I was doing the short stories for the collected stories of Drist, of the legend of Dritz, that what I realized is that going back and rereading those stories was like looking like at an old photo album. And they were really telling me where I was emotionally and what I was thinking when I was rereading them. I was like going back in time and space, if you will, and remembering where I was and what my life was like when I was writing that particular story over the years, you know, because this was a collection that dates back to 1989. Um, and so that's when I had the epiphany that this really isn't my job. It's kind of like my personal spiritual journey through life as I try to make sense of things, this writing. And then the second one I had, the second epiphany I had, and this comes from the, the emails I get all the time, is I think what Dritz has become to a lot of people is, is almost like a tie to a different time in their lives. So when they read the new Dritz book, they go back, and they, it's like they're back in high school or college or the military or even younger than high school when they were playing D&D with their friends and they first started reading the Dritz books. And so ever since I realized that, that Dritz is kind of like the lifeline back to, for most people, a simpler time in their lives, I've really made an effort to keep these books true to what they are. And what they are is rollicking fun adventure that you can read on several different levels. You can read them just to enjoy the fights, enjoy the, the, you know, the adventure, if you will. Or you can read them as if Dritz is your friend and these are your friends that you're walking down the road with. Or you can read them and try and gain some insight into maybe ask yourself the same questions Dritz is asking himself as he goes through these things. But all of that's got to be there in a certain balance that harkens back, in my mind, to the simpler days of fantasy, if you will, which were the 1980s. It was a much simpler time for fantasy. And so the Dritz books, I don't want them, if you will, to grow up and become something more like My Demon Wars or Martin's Song of Ice and Fire, you know, something gritty or darker and all of a sudden. I want them to be that lifeline back to your days of playing D&D when you were 14 years old. And I think there's value in that, and I don't want to ever lose that. Very good. 
I think that's a good place to uh, to end it off and to say goodbye and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. You bet. And I guess I'll I guess I'll talk to you this summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gen Con, right? I'll, I think I'm going to be there. They haven't told me formally yet, but they've hinted, and I, I expect to be. So, okay. yeah, probably. Okay. Very good. And we are back from all of that. So, <laughs> uh, time for the in-depth topics. Ten minutes on the clock. Randall, go. Okay. So, as you guys know, my whole theme tonight is minis, minis, minis. And anyone who's listened to me at all, whether it's been on Twitter or on the podcast I do, know I love Lego. And you might ask, what? What? Yes. What? What? What does Lego have to do with Dungeons & Dragons and Wizards of the Coast? Well, it doesn't. But Creo does. <laughs> it doesn't. But Hasbro is the parent company of not only Wizards of the Coast, but of their own building block company, which is compatible with a certain other product, which starts with an L, and they're called Creo. And they have hit the stores this month. And last weekend, I bought several of their minis, and they are awesome. Um, Wait, are you telling me they're in the stores already? Yes, they are. How did I not know this? They announced it, and then they never really said anything else. Totally slipped in there. Um, I'm looking at their main site now, and they've got about 12 different offerings of various set sizes. And um, I have to admit that um, Creo, as far as a building block is concerned, um, just, just barely um, away from Lego's own standards and and much better than um, Mega Block. So, you're so it goes. You're, you're saying it's a little bit less less uh, well constructed than Lego. Tiniest, tiniest bit. Um, so what happens? What happens? What, what does that mean? Does that mean like the blocks break easier? Or? No, no. What that means usually it has to do with how the blocks fit together amongst themselves. And I've got sets. I've got all three different types of Lego or building blocks. Excuse me. On my on my table right now, and I can tell you that the Legos fit together the best and have the most options, but the Creo also fit together extremely well together. And the only complaint I have about Creo is the minifig legs. Even though they give you more flexibility, the flexibility comes with the price and that that it's less sturdy. Um, when you take a Lego torso and stick it to the legs, they aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the legs on the Creo are a little... They're really flexible. They can go in any direction or whatever, which are great for posing and things like that. But because of the joint... Um, they're not quite as uh, not quite as stable, so I could see them having issues if there was a lot of hard play with them. Um, however, I have to admit, I got some of the mini um, what they, what they call their um, army builder pack, which is a random assortment of a dozen different ones that you can get, and they're like the Lego minifigs that you get in a single pack. But here's the deal: they retail at like two ninety nine at Toys R Us. That's a dollar cheaper than the average Lego minifig. Um, and they're very cool. I picked up five, and I didn't get a single duplicate. Um, they look they look really good. They've got some great armor pieces on them. Um, the fighter that I got, I got like four orcs and a fighter. And the fighter is kind of boring, actually. He doesn't have anything but a sword. So maybe the amount of stuff that comes with the mini is a little inconsistent. But, um, but they're all still very good. They even come with a little green um, round stand. That um, huh. you could use it as an actual uh, mini in a game. As an actual mini. Oh, that's now, cool. my, 
Yeah, now my understanding is that those stands are designed for, they sort of have a game built in with their sets. You know, we were talking about that earlier with the miniatures. Um, there's actually, you can, some of the uh, sets They have are cards. Act- yeah, exactly. Is, that what, yeah, is have, that what it is? They have, like, cards or something? They have stat cards, and then you also have a physical aspect to this game where you can, like, shoot stuff at the various minis. Hmm. Things like catapults and things like that. And so some of the named mm-hmm. minis, and I was going to get to those in just a second, there are some named mini things you can get, like Dritz or an Eye of Groomsh, or um, there's a character called Vancy, mm-hmm. um, who have some accessory stuff huh. with them. They have larger bases, and I think they have larger bases, not because they're a large figure, but because they're designed to be harder to knock over. Hmm. And so as a result, it's sort of a built-in thing for this game. That they're that they have now. Quite frankly, the only thing that I thought was odd was that none of the small things that I picked up had rules for the game with it. So I don't think those only. I think those game rules only come with the larger sets. Mm-hmm. But even no, those are not yeah. are not even priced outstanding. They're probably ten to twenty dollars cheaper than a similarly sized Lego set, which is an amazing bargain. And um, if you get a chance, at least pick up one because it's really if if you like. Um, building block stuff in at all if you like Lego at all, uh, Creo and I was I was skeptical guys I'm a hardcore Lego fan and um, and I'm here to tell you that I was actually impressed with Creo's offering. Hmm. While I may not actually get any of the large sets, but I'll certainly collect more of the army army blah, army builder pack stuff um, and maybe even some of the other named minis um, just because they look very cool. And, and it looks uh, like the, even the the larger sets are only like what fifteen seventeen bucks. Well, yeah, I think the largest one here listed is twenty five. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's that's cheap. Um, a similarly priced Lego set would be easily forty bucks, mm-hmm. if not more. And so, um, yeah, I wow. And they fit on the tabletop, guys. I'm telling you, I've used Legos for mini as minis for years. And the cool thing about it is that if you get enough of that stuff. You can let your players customize their own mini. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, only it used to be only the hardcore fans of minis could you know could take and melt down mm-hmm. you know or cut off heads of metal miniatures and put on other ones and and switch out weapons and stuff like that with a Lego type mini or a building block type mini. It's easy. I mean, it's and, a little it's a little less immersive because because you know they're they're building like block minifigs, right? But right. Um, but you know, I, I was. And for that reason, I was real hesitant. Plus, I already have this collection of minis, right? But sure. Now that I'm looking at them even more, I'm 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 real tempted. Yeah, it's 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 been pretty cool. Um, so, I, like I said, uh, that's the reason. It, you know, it's a Hasbro company. Uh, same people that make Wizards of the Coast, and obviously, they're using the Dungeons and Dragons um, uh, license. You know, mm-hmm. would it have been great if Lego had acquired the license. Sure, but since you know, it makes sense. <laughs> but that Hasbro, wasn't gonna, that wasn't going to happen, right? Yeah, since Hasbro has this building block. Um, you know, stuff, uh, there's no reason that they shouldn't be utilizing their own property. And they finally are. And I think that's very awesome. Um, If they sell well, then, you know, you're only going to see more of that stuff because Mm -hmm. that's how it works. So, Well, they also just... If you're if you're also a Star Trek, G.I. Joe, or Transformers fan, apparently they have a bunch of kits of those, too. And some of those those look like they could go 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 across. Like there was a, I I saw a Transformers one with a with a little dragon on it too. Mm -hmm. 
you know? Yeah, there's a set of there's a, even a monster set, which is like totally a rip off the Lego monster set, sure. right? But it's <laughs> um, but it's got a lot of parts in it that would cross over, and anyone who's a Star or sci-fi fan and wants to use the similar kind of stuff for sci-fi, the Star Trek sets are actually really good, hmm. uh, and there's several of them, and no one else has that property, you know. And so, you know, Creo has a really they've got a couple of niches here that could really work for them well and the fact that i was impressed with the way the amongst themselves now i haven't tried mixing and matching there are are some Mm. things um that probably won't be compatible but most of the actual blocks are more or less compatible with lego or you know mega block even but i haven't mixed the two so i can't tell you how well creo works with lego but creo with creo is virtually as good as lego with lego now, you said that they come in these Battlefield sets. Uh, I think uh, I saw two of them, two different types of Battlefield sets. There's three I th- uh, of the Battlefields. There's a... There's Battlefield uh, Heroes. There's a Fortress Defense set. There's a Fortress Tower set and a Battle Outpost set. And then there's... But what, uh, what was it that you said oh. you bought, like, five of them but didn't get repeats? Oh, that was the Army Builder Pack. The Army Builder Pack. Okay. And, 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 and so- those... Yeah, those are individuals. So you buy. So you get one minifig and some accessories with it or whatever, but you. Right. But it's randomized? Yeah, randomized. So you don't know what you're going to get? You do not, no. But you got five and didn't get any of the same thing? Yeah. So what all did you get? Was it all orcs and whatever? Or? It was one fighter and the rest were orcs of different kinds. I mean, there was like a. Let's see, I'm trying to remember them all now, and I'd have to get up to be able to tell you, but and I, my headphones don't reach that far. But there's like a. Um, uh, these are all names from the, the familiar orc miniatures. That's what I thought was really cool. Um, there's like an orc fighter. There's an orc axe fighter. Um, there's a orc grunt. What was it? I think that's what it was. Um, and then, um, and then of course, I got an eye of Groomsh. Um, and he was a larger figure. I mean, not larger as in size, but had more stuff with him. He was actually named. Um, and the reason I picked him out of some of the others that they had... Uh, he wasn't random. You could tell what he was. But he had like a spider and a tre- treasure chest that could easily double as a mimic because it has these little <laughs> teeth. It has these little teeth that come down out of the lid. And while I think it's supposed to meant to be a trap, it could easily be a mimic. You could totally make this into a mimic. Um, there were coins that go in the chest. Has a little potion bottle. There's a little spider. It was the he had the coolest. His spear has like a, a translucent green tip on it. And that's the duck. <laughs> it came with the duck. Wow. No, yeah, really. Um, but it was it was the coolest of the three ninety nine ones uh, and the named you know what I call the named minis. Um, he had the coolest accessories. Yeah. So I, I, I was going to tell people that they can go to Amazon and get these as well. But you know what? Honestly, from what I've looked around, the Toys R Us prices are better. So as much as I'd love for people to use our affiliate link, mm-hmm. if you're going to save a few bucks doing it for through uh, Toys R Us. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't disparage you for doing it. Yeah, I was looking at the actual Creo shop, and um, I, I didn't see how that compared to Toys R Us. But uh, it looks like they may not have them on the actual Creo shop on Hasbro's site yet. Okay. So they've got them everywhere else, and like I, said, they, I found mine in Toys R Us. Um, like I said, if you collect the Lego minifigures, those usually run three ninety nine retail, unless you find like a you know. Uh, bargain bin ones or, or older series that they're trying to get rid of. Um, but these were a whole dollar cheaper a piece. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're getting a fan, you're basically getting a fantasy miniature. 
and it's I I can't talk enough. It's pretty impressive. I enjoyed it. And I wasn't sure that this would be ten minutes worth of conversation, but look at us. There you go. <laughs> I, uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited, pretty pumped about those. So I'm gonna. I'm, These I, look. I you I should. Might, I think I'm all of our listeners should go to the to the Creo website and check this out because mm-hmm. this is pretty cool. Yeah. I did not realize it was already out. I I was still in the coming soon mindset of of that particular product. And like this, a, is, this is nice. Yeah. And like the WizKids ones, I would be really interested to see um, monsters. I think I uh, someone on Twitter uh, was a board game geek. No, I can't remember his name. And forgive me if particularly if you're a listener and I don't have your name right, but. Um, they go to board game um, uh, conventions and stuff like that, and uh, there are some things like gargoyles and stuff like that coming out, um, mm-hmm. and maybe a golem or something, perhaps. But um, so far, I haven't seen anything in, in the way of monsters yet, and it'll be interesting to see if they do that. Um, it's only been recently that a lot of Lego sets have things that would pass as monsters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's um, that's still kind of a place that's lacking a little bit, but... Um, with some imagination and stuff like that, you can you can build them from blocks if you had to. <laughs> so um, it's not a uh, it's not a deal breaker, but it's uh, there's some cool stuff coming. Yeah, and and actually here, so check it out. All right, cool. Uh, I'm next. I'm going to start the clock, and I'm going to try to see if I can squeeze in two articles, two topics, but along similar themes. Uh, because I'm going to talk about levels and experience points and things. Um, I'm going to start with the Legends and Lore article from February 17th, where Merles talks about uh, experience points and levels as the title. It's a fairly short article, and it looks it looked like this month, uh, you know, short month maybe, short articles. Um, but it, it, it was interesting because it was a an article wherein he acknowledged what a lot of groups were already doing. You know, he, he sort of starts off by saying, uh, I, whenever I, you know, I, I like to make rules changes that mimic what a lot of DMs are already doing, right? And in this case, he's dealing with experience points and levels where a lot of DMs who are running more story-driven campaigns, myself included, uh, abandoned experience points a long time ago. And, you know, you just sort of level up at uh, climaxes or after important events along the story and, and progress things that way. Uh, and it sounds like they are embracing the allowance of that concept, which I think is a good thing. Um, so they're not get, doing away with experience points for next. But instead, they're saying when we design um, adventures and modules and things, let's give people the opportunity to run it either way. You know, so in, Which I think is good because a lot of adventures – the designers that I've talked to, right, they, they've complained that it's really hard sometimes to design an adventure because I have to get in a certain number of experience points in this chapter so that they're at the right level to get to this thing later on, right? And so you sort of have to shove some extra encounters in that may or may not make make sense in this, along the story and all that kind of stuff. And now they're going to allow their module designers a little more flexibility to um, use – to to – allow it to go either way, right? You can either use the experience point model and here are some extra things you can do to make sure you have enough or you can just do the story-based model and here are the points where you level up. I'm excited about that. Anybody mm-hmm. else? Um, I, I think that's a probably a good uh, – some additional flexibility that's needed to be done. I've been 
doing a lot of Numenera design lately, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously not a Wizards product, but um, I actually like the way the experience is handled in that game. Oh, yeah? I, I wish there was a way they could do it similar in, in Dungeons & Dragons. I like the idea of experience points being able to be um, used as currency for gaining specific abilities. After so many, um, you gain a you gain a um, in this for if you want to translate to D anD D, you would gain a level specific type of ability. Oh sure, um, and you could even separate those out by class. So you know you're not just higgledy piggledy throwing abilities at people for whatever. But um, it sounds like that would re- that would require a, a redesign from from the core up though. Maybe um, I think the trickiest part would be deciding what powers are level appropriate for what classes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you'd have and to what do... it costs to, to buy them and all that. Right. Exactly. You know, uh, you know, in Numenera, it's you, once you get four experience points, you can trade that in for, for a power, mm. um, or you can trade those during the game to do other things with them as well. Um, so it's a smaller and scale. It, yeah. Uh, but then it, it's a, it's almost like, okay, you're sacrificing the ability to, to, "Quote unquote level up," although it's not officially a level up because it's like you said, you buy the you would buy the new power in D and D speak. That means oh, when I get enough experience, I get that level and I get that new power automatically. In Numenera, it's well, when I get this many experience, I can spend them on that new power if I want, or you well, know, yeah, if I, I don't if I don't have that many yet, if I only right. have two, I can actually spend one in this particular situation in the game. To gain a, an immediate benefit, right. but I'm sacrificing using that experience point to buy that that permanent level up thing later. Right, right? or to Is get out right? of or, or to get out of a bad situation. Right, yeah, I, right. yeah, that's what I mean. But it, it's it's yeah. a temporary. It's an expenditure for a temporary mm-hmm. benefit mm-hmm. versus right. holding on to them to spend them for a permanent benefit. But the interesting spin on that is that it's your the number of powers that you have that determines whether you're going up to the next tier or not. Oh, I see. And, okay. and not, um, you know, once you get four of those, or what, three of those, I think? Three or four? Can't remember now. I have to relook at the rules. But um, then you uh, go up another tier. Now, the, again, yeah, there's a lot of differences in it. And I'm just showing, uh, illustrating it because of contrast. But right. there's, um, the levels are flatter. It's a flatter system. Mm-hmm. Uh, characters at first level really are going to be facing a lot of the same challenges that characters at, um, I think they go as high as six tiers in, in uh, Numenera. So, but, so it's a flatter system. It's not um, a big, as big of a scale. Right. Uh, There's no one to 20. Tier. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's a little different that way. Sure. But, but anyway, sorry, I just... No, I, I, I'm I just, like the idea of that doing that. And, I'm just excited about them. Yeah. I'm just excited about them recognizing the way a lot of people are playing and then Absolutely. at the same time giving themselves and their writers and designers some more flexibility to make better story-driven adventures. Yep, I think you that's know? a good idea. I think yeah. that's good. And then tied into that, James Wyatt on uh, February 5th uh, wrote an article called called Tears of Play in his Wandering Monster series uh, dealing with sort of this concept of tears. Um, he talks briefly about the idea of name levels from back in the original AD&D, um, but then quickly moves on to, to, you know, sort of discussing, you know, what are the tiers and how in a lot of ways you could kind of 
early on defined them by spellcasters. You know, first and le- second level spells aren't changing the world. Third level spells are where things start to change because you're getting some of the iconic sort of p- powers of the game, right? Fireball and lightning bolt and, and breathing underwater fly. and fly and all that, right? <laughs> uh, and then he talks about levels. Um, so levels three through five are the iconic areas. Uh, he talks about how levels... Uh, Level five then is where you start to change the nature of the game again because now you're suddenly teleporting and raising dead and and scrying and that changes the way that the game works right and the way the stories work and then pretty much every level after that has some big things you know six is when you start getting some like instant kills like disintegrate um, you know and, and so it just sort of builds from there until of course nine where you're just changing the nature of reality at your will with things like wish um, and so then he talks about how that was sort of an, an early um, non-codified way of, of understanding the way leveling up changes the way you interact with the world. Then in 4th edition, of course, they codified it very solidly. 1st through 10th through is Heroic, 11 uh, and 20 is Paragon, and uh, 21 to 30 is Epic. Uh, and he sort of relates that, you know, sort of this is how that fits in with 3rd edition, right? Uh, they said Heroic in 3rd in edition would have been 1 to 5, um, Paragon is 6 to 14, and then Epic is, is 15 to 20. Um, so that was interesting, but then he said, you know, so more relevantly though, where is that, where are we going now? Um, and so he sort of lays out a concept of tiers for next that still sort of defines how you're interacting with the world. Cause that's really how tiers are useful, right? It's less about what monster, well, it's less about, you know, what stat blocks I can pull out. It's more about how am I interacting with the world? You know, am I doing planner adventures now? At what point do I become a superhero in the world? At what point am I, am I just a, a mook trying to survive in these dungeons? Uh, you know, it, it sort of helps define that for the DMs, and it, it's a useful point for conversation. Um, he said that what they're looking at is levels one through four will be the apprentice levels, where you're still sort of defining yourself as a character, picking your specializations, all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, building off of one, one and two, which are you know the also you know they're the sort of core apprentice levels where you're picking your your specializations and stuff. Uh, he said that um, levels five through ten then is what they're calling the expert tier. Where uh, spellcasters are getting their third level spells, and now everybody's sort of there, you know they're more or less an expert on on what they can and can't do. You know they've got a handle on themselves pretty well. Right. Uh, levels eleven through six is where you enter what do they call it the paragon tiers, where you start getting access to six level spells and and you know doing the stakes start to rise and you know. Um, you're well above, you know, in everybody else. You know, there's very few people at levels 11 through 16. And then he's calling uh, 17 through 20 the epic tier where you can almost become superheroes in the world, which is actually nice for me to hear because I like having the option of that style of play. I know, Randall, you don't. Um, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> so I'm glad that that's still sort of that concept is still in there. So that's that's all the stuff that they've talked about with levels and experience and tiers and stuff that I thought was sort of well tied together. And I've got 27 seconds left. Anything else we should talk about? <laughs> should we just sit in silence for 20 seconds until the duck quacks? No, no, I, I don't know if the ne- I don't know if it's necessary to have four tiers. I think three would have been sufficient. Well, I think, and I think honestly it is three except that they added in this concept of, of the apprentice tier, you know, yeah. because they're doing these apprentice levels, which is a little bit lower than what used to be heroic tier. It could be I just don't like the word paragon. <laughs> I would just soon had I would just soon have apprentice, expert, you know, and then either heroic or um, super or, or um, 
uh, epic either way, but you know. I don't. Yeah, I don't mind Paragon. Simplify as far as I'm I, concerned. I don't but, mind yeah, Paragon whatever. only because I've gotten used to it because I've been doing it for years now, right? Right. So, all right, Randall, you're next. No, I'm not. No, Sam, you're next. <laughs> <laughs> Randall, go again. Talk <laughs> about Kriyo some more. <laughs> uh, well, I am talking about a, a couple of. Uh, I'm going to actually mention three articles because. Uh, uh, well, l- let me just mention them. And that, so, I, there's a Wandering Monsters article by James Wyatt on the 19th of February, po- posted on the 19th of February, about um, about gods and pantheons. It's a you know relatively generic, interesting article. He actually at the beginning of it he talks about na- the name level ideas that yeah. uh, that he were it up a few times. I think they're bringing it back. Yeah, I, well, I think I think he he's he's sort of uh, he, he's giving a a stream of consciousness set of articles related to the whole concept of advancement and how you relate that to a campaign and how you relate it to the way that the the characters interact with the world and and such things like that. Um, and he he talks about uh, you know differences between you know what does it mean if if the people in the world worship a lot of different gods and do they worship more than one at a time and what does that mean for a cleric and you know do clerics should they be opposed to each other or or can they can they appreciate the involvement of other gods but they only worship their one true divine you know god that they're devoted to and all this kind of stuff um and it's, it's an interesting area of conversation right i mean that's it, something it, it is about a lot too. It, I mean, it is in a pantheonic setting people worship all the gods right that's right, how that works right. you 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 go for the one who you know if you if uh, if something is wrong with the harvest uh, you go to the one the god you to the god who's you know responsible right. for the harvest and you you try to bribe that god you know or you pray to that god or however you want to you know uh, and if it's if it's about you know um, trying to make the orc hordes turn away you 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 know, you beg from the god of war and try to bring on some warriors to to turn away those orcs because the god of the god of harvesting is not going to help you probably. You know th- that kind of thing. Um, but and that's all well and good. But but this article and then and the next one is is even more obvious. Um, the the twenty sixth uh, just a couple yesterday because we're recording this on the twenty seventh. Way to give away the timing, Sam. Um, <laughs> the, now now the, everybody will know how long it takes you to edit. Right. No. <laughs> The, uh, and then the, the also by by James Wyatt, the Wandering Monsters article on the twenty sixth is about themes uh, in your campaign and and uh, sort of mentioning different you know the, the difference between a, a, a theme as a storyline and themes as as discussed as overarching themes from the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide and then themes as sort of picked apart in literary criticism and and you know or literary critique kind of style um and how you know how one might apply the different concepts and and different ideas of what theme is and how important it is to your campaign uh in terms of building your campaign as a dm so these two articles together um along with the one that that jeff mentioned a minute ago really just point to the fact that um mr wyatt is writing the dungeon master's guide for fifth edition (laughs) (laughs) And um, and so he's giving us a sneak peek at some of the topics that he's really thinking hard about right now, and and is is writing in much more detail. I hope because these articles are pretty shallow. 
Um, they're, they're interesting conversation starters. They're, you know. they're interesting conversation starters. They're, they're interesting things that uh, if you're starting a new campaign, you might want to sit down as the DM and, and have a conversation with your players and ask mm-hmm. them what they think about these things. And, you know, it's, it's a way for you to make sure that you're making your players, you know, all your players happy and that they're getting what they right. expect. And the, uh, the expectations are set at a level that is something that you can fulfill versus something that you didn't even have any idea about. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, and then I, he's he's musing here, whereas in the he, DMG, he, hopefully he is. giving advice. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I was going to say is oh. that that and I keep and stepping then, on your toes. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I, and then so then there was a Legends and Lore article that that Mike Merles wrote and posted on the twenty fourth about sorcerers, and you know it, it sort of has the same feeling as these other two articles, though, because it doesn't really tell us anything. Um, it, it, it hints at the end uh, about uh, wild magic. Um, and, and its unpredictable nature is going to be part of D and D next, but it doesn't really. I mean, it's it's sort of like a teaser, and so all three of these articles are sort of like a teaser. Um, and I think I think that's on purpose. I think I think they're in the mode now where you know what the books are going to be coming out in in a few months, and they're really they're sort of their focus is shifting to let's build some excitement. Let's you know they're they're it's much less right now an idea of telling us what what's what they're thinking about and what they're doing and it's much more an idea of of telling us here's what you should be excited about because we're already doing these things yeah it's, um, it's not what they're thinking about it's yeah. what they thought about already. it's right it's what they've yeah. already done and it's what we should be excited about because it's yeah. you know they they leave so much out of these articles and it's not you know you know, four months ago, the the articles were about okay. Here's what we're doing in the playtest, and here's what's happening, and here's the feedback that we have been discussing in house, and and here's your feedback that you're giving us, and so here's how we're making these changes, and so you'll see that in the next packet. And now it's like okay, well, let's talk about this philosophical idea of a theme in your campaign, and and how do you think of themes? Is it more on the, about the villain, or is it about you know? Do you want world changing events, and you know? this kind of sort of ethereal idea of what makes a campaign. It's more about the type of thing that's going to go in a good advice book and less about what's going to go into a meaty rules section. But here's the thing, though. I really hope that along with this sort of very fluffy idea of you should have a theme to your campaign, they also really give ideas about, okay, here's what that means. If you really want to build a campaign and you really want it to have an overarching theme of whatever – he gives several examples of types of themes – then here's how you actually build that into your game. Right. You know, with with some step by step, you know, advice. Not necessarily like you must follow all ten steps or you will fail, but more like here are the things that you do. Concrete examples of what you do versus the sort of fluffiness that's in these articles. Well, if you think this way, then that's good, and if you think that way, then you could think about it that way. And you know, it, it's very. I, I mean, suspect, I, I don't I mean, I don't mean to denigrate. I don't mean to denigrate the the articles. They're really good. I mean, they're interesting and. You know, like Jeff said, they're interesting to talk about, but I hope the DMG is a little meatier. I suspect it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect it will be too. But yeah, I mean, th- this is him figuring out exactly what angle he wants to go on the mm-hmm. DMG. I think, and then the DMG right. will be okay. This is the angle we're going to go in, and now let mm-hmm. me give you some advice on that. Right. You know, this this is more of let's start a conversation, and then of course the DMG is there's no conversation because it's a book. Mm-hmm. You know? So here's right. what it is. Right. Um, so I suspect yeah. well, it'll, it'll come together. And I've said all along that I hope the DMG guy, ha- DMG, has some 
hardcore examples of what you can mm-hmm. do. And because right. even if that's not the way you want to run your campaign, the very fact that there are hard examples gives you jumping off points mm-hmm. for your own stuff. You can draw analogies, you can do something a little different or a little the same or whatever and still come up with something that's cohesive and um, you know that works for your particular campaign. So that was the dog, yeah. sorry. It's all right. Yeah, that's what I, and that's that's kind of what, and it's and it's sort of what I've been saying with every kind of review that I've been, <laughs> right, every right, right, right. everything I've reviewed and every every article I read, I've just I'm still left with this this uh, in, this impending impinging what is it this this overwhelming feeling of man I really hope they put some some really hardcore advice in into this rule set because I I think the I think that part of the problem with fourth edition and, and one of the reasons why it wasn't as popular was was that they did not give good advice to new players and new DMs mm. at the very beginning. And it and it made it, you know, it was very much when you read the book, yeah, if you've played D and D before for a long time, all the words and everything makes sense, but if you haven't it's it's like reading an an encyclopedia or a dictionary without really having good examples of how to use those words. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I don't think I think I don't think it's true of a hundred percent of the book, but I think a, a large portion of the of three core books for fourth edition were were very much focused on experienced players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and I, I really well, I really hope that they well I really hope that they they. They have an eye. They have at least an acknowledgement of that, and they really try to get a, at least a good like beginner box or starter product, or that within the core that they have some really good advice for new GMs. Well, Sam, the only thing I disagree with you would be uh, as far as fourth edition is concerned is I really think they relied on the boxed set to introduce at least players. Now, I will agree. DMs got very little support in 4th edition, as far as I'm concerned, hmm. at least as, when the game came out. Players, I think, the walkthrough in the first book, I mean in the box set, which I think mm-hmm. is what they relied on to get people into the game, mm-hmm. um, I thought it was okay. Which box you know, set? Which the box red box. Set? The red box. No, see, but that wasn't that the wasn't launch of 4th edition. 4th edition had a blue box. Had a blue starter set box. Okay, I don't care about the color. I mean, there was a starter no, no, set, but, but no, but the starter box came with essentials, and that was two and a half years into the right. Yeah, that was all great for beginners. All of those essentials products were great for beginners. But the game had already been in existence for almost three years by that time. I'm saying with D and D next, they need to start when they when they release the product. They need to have something in the pipeline for brand new. DMs that yeah, says, I okay. Was, yeah, I thought there was a starter box set when the game was first released. There was. It was there, that was the blue was, box. But it wasn't, but it, it wasn't. It was it okay. It was basically great, just quick start was, rules and an adventure. Yeah. It wasn't a great, it wasn't, it wasn't full of advice for here's how you play this game. I mean, it was okay. assuming yeah. uh, the, the DM already knew what he was doing. You might have new players. Yeah, great. But. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The, the red box, as much as it's a kind of a maligned product, the Essentials red box and the Essentials line for brand new people was pretty good. At least on players. I, mean, I still think there yeah. wasn't enough DM support, but well, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's, it was it's an interesting good. conversation because like, I, I never read a DMG in as much detail as I did the 4th edition one, so my perception was there was a lot of stuff in there in, in the in – the, DMG one and DMG two, especially DMG two, I thought that one was was even better in terms of the advice and things. Yeah. Um, but maybe it did fall flat compared to the others. I just 
I wasn't I wasn't as much of a DM in those well, other I editions, think, so I never read the DMG. In that yeah, I, I think that the DMG. I mean, once again, it's kind of like these articles. The DMG is a good product. It, it's one of the best Dungeon Masters guides that, that any edition has had, but especially DMG two. But I still, I really, I just get, I get this feeling that they're just they need to really give concrete. You know, it's kind of like. Um, it's almost like they're afraid of saying the most obvious cliched thing. But you know what? Sometimes that's how you teach a new person is, mm-hmm. look, here's this most obvious cliched thing. You walk into the room. There's a casket there. Whoops, it's got a vampire in it. You know what I mean? Like that's because that's the trope of, okay, v- casket with a vampire sleeping in it. Rather than go for try to make it fantastical and exciting and everything has to be brand new and all that. Give a new DM solid – Mm-hmm. ways to introduce yes you want they want interesting fantastical things but you need to give them solid advice from the get-go of here's how you do this assume that you had five friends get together and they draw straws to see who's going to be the dm right all, not all dms are absolutely walk into it with 100 percent skill level and are able to run the most fantastic adventure ever they need help yep mm-hmm. i agree that's all i'm saying okay <laughs> Agreed. We're all on board. All right. I love how I didn't get a duck quack. I got the dog shaking his head in the you dog. You got a duck quack too. The dog. Oh, I, I missed it. Yep. I only heard the dog shaking his head. But at this <laughs> point, we're 53 minutes or so into our conversation without the uh, the ad inserted and the interview inserted. So um, yeah. I think that's all the time we have for this episode. <laughs> yep. Oh, I guess it's me, huh? <laughs> yeah, okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs> and we want to thank you guys for supporting us by shopping at Amazon and D&D Classics through our affiliate links over at the Toe Show. T- the Toe Show. The Toe, the toe Show. show. I gotta, now i got to go out and get a new URL. Jeez. <laughs> is that a thing, the Toe Show? I bet it will be at now. It is now. Ew. I'm not, I'm not tuning into that. Yeah, no kidding at thetomeshow.com and we want to thank Noble Knight Games for their continued support. Also, you can find show notes and other great D&D shows over at thetomeshow.com and if you want to get a hold of us, feel free to email thetomeshow at gmail.com or you could call us at our infamous biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E that's 919-BIZ-TOME Which I assume is still working but I haven't heard anything on it in like months so... Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> oh, no, that means, yes, then you should call in you so that we should. can play you on the air. Absolutely. All right, until next time, this is Jeff Greiner signing out for myself and si- Sam Dillon. Uh, and our man about to take a dip into the plastic vest to see what it's like to make a D&D mini from the inside because that's just how dedicated he is to the job. Randall Walker. It's like a spa for <laughs> nerds. It's awesome. All right. Keep on gaming, Tomites. Mites.